picking up in the series we're picking up in a series of five challenges that the pharisees are presenting to jesus they're attacking uh jesus had started his ministry with power showing his authority showing that he is the messiah he is the son of god and all of his teachings you can know they're true because there are miracles that authenticate them and that also pertains to the sabbath day and the part one of this sermon series i i tried to outline what jesus assumes which is that the fourth commandment is still valid that the fourth commandment which says on this day on uh, one day in seven to set aside your works and to rest in the lord and worship him that this commandment still applies today and i'm not going to repeat that sermon but just to give you a few hints about that maybe this is the summary that you would have liked to have listened to 3 weeks ago you can see that from the very fact that the sabbath this day of rest that we've been given it was not all of a sudden uh, a new thing when moses presented it to the people but when moses presented the sabbath the day of rest he was just reiterating what had been true since the very beginning god had created humanity in the image of god and that applies to our character our personhood and it's even reflected in the way we live our lives god worked 6 days creating the universe and genesis chapter 2 1 through 3 says that he rested on the 7th day therefore he holied sanctified and set apart that day and if you were confused about whether or not we should still have a day of rest well first of all we're all here on sunday so that's one testimony to that fact but the other testimony is that it's in the 10 commandments which of the 10 commandments did not exist prior to the mosaic law when god gave it on mount sinai haven't people always had to worship god and him alone hasn't there always hasn't it always been true that idols are nothing hasn't it always been true that murder is wrong i i hope that you say yes especially to that one murder was wrong before the 10 commandments were given what was being given on mount sinai was a summary of god's moral order how he created the universe and that distinction of the 10 commandments is something you can see in the text itself if you go back online and listen to that sermon our task this morning is a little bit simpler but also the text is a little bit more complex we're going to look at what jesus taught on the sabbath and what jesus taught on the sabbath and what how people are to follow it comes in the context of a challenge a confrontation which is why i titled this sermon a challenge to the lord of the sabbath let's pick up in our text starting uh, in verse 23 of chapter 2 i don't think i've said that yet this we're going to be reading from mark chapter 2 verses 23 and we're going to read up until chapter 3 verse 6 verse 23 one sabbath he was going through the grain fields 
And as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry? He and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord, even of the Sabbath. Again, he entered the synagogue, and there a man was there with a withered hand. A disfigured hand is what that is. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it not lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out. And his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to destroy him. This is the reading of God's inerrant holy word. Let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we need you. We need you to cure our hard hearts. That we might understand your word. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would do that and bless the reading, and the preaching of your word this morning. It's in Jesus Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Both of these challenges, there's two challenges recorded here, verses 23 through 28, and verses 1 and 6, through 6 of chapter 3. But they're both dealing with the same subject. They're dealing with Jesus and his activity on the Sabbath. The Pharisees have a problem, and the problem is said in a statement three times. In verse 24, it says their accusation against him is that he's doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. And then Jesus, in verse 26, points out that the priest, in David's case, did what was not lawful. And when he brings up the subject again, rather than being on the defense as he was in chapter 2, he goes on the offense. He brings the man with the wither hand up and says, he presents the question to them. And look how he presents it. He says in verse 4 of chapter 3, is it lawful to heal, basically, to do good on the Sabbath? That's the crux of the issue. The crux of the issue that Jesus is dealing with is that they are basically accusing him of being a breaker of the fourth commandment 
And Jesus offers a defense of himself and then gives them the true meaning of the Sabbath. What's another way we can word their accusation of him being a lawbreaker? They're calling him a sinner. John chapter 9, they see a blind man healed, and the whole chapter is dealing with the Pharisees wrestling with this very obvious healing in front of them. And they keep asking him again and again, how were you healed? And they refuse to believe that he was healed by Jesus. Why? Because they said, we are not disciples of Jesus, a sinner. We're disciples of Moses. And what we get in our text today is something very interesting. The reason why I said, and I started off with this, that Jesus is assuming the validity of the fourth commandment. Notice that Jesus, his argumentation here, he never said, well, of course I break the fourth commandment. It doesn't matter. I am the king, and I say that it's no longer a law that God's people should keep. Of course Jesus would not do that. But we do read in Mark chapter 7 where Jesus does that, do that for a particular law. Mark chapter 7, verse 18, when he's talking to the Pharisees, he says, are you not without understanding? Do you not see that what goes, whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Since it enters in his heart, it enters not into his heart. Food doesn't go into your heart. Food does not go into your heart, but where does it go? Into his stomach and is expelled. Listen closely to this, the very end of Mark chapter 7, verse 19. Thus, he declared all foods clean. Jesus, as we saw last time, three weeks ago now, was the Lord of the Sabbath. If at any moment Jesus could have just said, hey, let's get past this issue. We don't need to keep the fourth commandment. He could have said a similar statement to the effect of saying, instead of all, declaring all foods clean, he could have declared the Sabbath day, a day of rest and worship, null and void. It's God's prerogative. It's God's day. He could have done that. But what we get instead is a defense. Jesus' defense in verses 23 through 28 is to say what he's doing and what his disciples are doing is, in fact, lawful. It is right. What they're doing is good. They're not breaking God's commandment. And that's what we'll look at in the first half. And we'll actually spend the majority of our time looking at Jesus' defense of his disciples' actions. And then secondly, we'll look at the underlying principle. He gives the underlying principle in verse 27 that the Sabbath was made for man, but he then goes on the offense in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 3 to show how this principle applies. So really, Jesus is treating the fourth commandment the way he treats all of the commandments. He assumes their validity, then he attacks not the commandment, but the interpretation of the Pharisees or the extra laws that they attach to it. And it's in that context that he's really clarifying through a conflict, clarifying what the true meaning of God's law is. 
Before we can get to the defense, though, let, let me not assume anything. Let's look at the accusation, verse 23. One, on one Sabbath, he's going, they're going through the grain fields, and they make their way, and his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. What's going on here in this very first situation, the very first prompting? Well, the disciples, yes, they have a home base in Peter's mother-in-law's house, especially on their mission to Capernaum, but Jesus says about him and his disciples that they have no place to lay their head. They're wandering, traveling teachers of Israel. And because of that, have you ever wondered how did they feed themselves? During this whole time, how did they find breaks to eat, to survive? Well, they, they followed the code of Israel. They were relying off of laws like Deuteronomy 23, verse 25, that says that it's lawful, it's a good thing to not to harvest every element of your field, but to leave the edges to the poor, that they can go through, harvest, some of the grain, and eat it. The disciples were not rich people. Jesus was not a rich man. He was a poor man. And he's leading his disciples through the grain field, and they're harvesting grain to eat. And the accusation is, they watched Jesus, oh, wrong verse, and the Pharisees were saying to him, to Jesus, that is, verse 24, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath. Their accusation is that the disciples are guilty of breaking God's law. In the parallel text to this, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus' point to them, he says, that if you had known what this means, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Jesus is the very, the accusation that they make against Jesus is that his disciples are guilty. Jesus's contention is that they are guiltless. And how does he prove this? Well, he does this by making an appeal to a scriptural precedent. I get that language from R.C. Sproul. By the way, if you listen to the R.C. Sproul sermon, uh, this is not just taken straight from him, but some things it's just hard to, to get out of my mind once I've listened to an R.C. Sproul sermon on a topic. He talked about this defense as an appeal to scriptural precedent. Jesus' accusation against them is not to void the law, but he says, have you never read? Have you never read your Bibles? Think about how insulting that would have been to the Pharisees. Have you never read what? What David did in that story that Anthony read. And notice that when he quotes this, or not quotes this story, when he alludes to this story, he says, when he was in need and was hungry, and those who were with him, how he entered into the house of God in the time of Abiathar, or Abiathar, either one, we speak English, so it doesn't really matter, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he also gave it to those who were with them. So the very first point of Jesus' defense, why they are not guilty but guiltless, 
is he appeals to scriptural precedence, precedence. But notice I said he, he's making an appeal. He, this is not a direct quotation. None of these words are a direct quotation lifted directly out of the incident of 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. The words, Jesus, uh, David's men being hungry and in need is never directly stated, but the fact that David's on the run and he's asking for food and he that the priest says, the only thing I have is the bread that's in the temple, that shows that the reason why they're there, it's obvious. They're there because they're hungry and they're in need. They have no supplies at all. And that's really important because if you have been a really close listener during this time, you would have noticed that Jesus said, that David entered into the temple in the time of Abiathar, while the text that Anthony read, the person that David came to was Ahimelech. He was the high priest at the time. Why is Jesus doing that? Is this a mistake that Mark has made? That's the contention of most unbelieving scholars. But I think it gets cleared up pretty easily if we first know the book of First Samuel, and we see that he's not quoting the text directly. Jesus is alluding to this whole situation as a set of a scriptural precedence for his disciples eating and harvesting on the Sabbath. Why does he say Abiathar and not Ahimelech? Well, did you notice when Anthony was reading that story that the Himelech was not the only priest there. There was 85, there were 86 total priests that were there that died that day as a result of supporting David. And there was one guy, though, that escaped. Who was the one guy that escaped the slaughter? Who was aiding David in supporting him with food, curing his need, giving him even supplies of sword? It was Abiathar. And Abiathar is a very important high priest in the Davidic storyline. Abiathar is a high priest who is David's right-hand man, who sticks with him throughout his entire life, even into the reign of Solomon. Abiathar is the main character. That's Abiathar's origin story, if you will, because his father was murdered. That's why in our translations, the words in the original are not in the time of Abiathar, but it's just this one Greek preposition that indicates that. It's just in the blank of Abiathar. Well, the preposition, the Greek word epi there, it can refer to a duration of time. Abiathar was there, he was serving, and he was soon to become the main character. Why would Jesus pick up on Abiathar, though? Because the priests of his day are against him. The priests of his day, they're looking for a way to accuse the Messiah, the anointed one of God. But true priests, men like Abiathar, they follow the Messiah. They follow the anointed one. The priesthood is supposed to be supporting the king, the Messiah. And that is exactly the opposite of what they are doing. But then what about their defense? And what is, how does he then use this situation to prove that what they're doing is not lawful? 
Well, it's a very obvious thing that to eat the bread that's the holy bread that's in the tabernacle, it's not for everybody. It's only for to be eaten by the priest. But there's an assumption here when you look at the law of God. If you would have known that the heart of the law was to do justice, that the, this is um, Micah chapter 6, verse 8, that what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. And I left out something there. He says, what does the Lord require of you? But to do what is good. Look at verse 27 there. Jesus reminds them that the Sabbath was made for man. And the point of my last sermon was really to get into that. How was the Sabbath made for man? Well, the position of the Pharisees, and the reason why they saw the disciples as guilty, was because they had a very particular understanding of the law. Luke chapter 13, verse 14 we get to see this insight because Jesus encountered and had conflicts with the Pharisees all the time about the Sabbath issue. That in Luke chapter 13, verse 14, a ruler of the synagogue was indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath and said to the people, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed and not on the Sabbath day. The understanding of the Pharisees was that do not work of the fourth commandment applied to absolutely every kind of work. But this is, just very frankly, not so. David, when he was in need, even though there was a ceremonial law, there was a ceremony of the fact that the bread was not to be eaten, In time of need, that law was superseded to the fact that David was in need. The king was in need of food. That in his need, he was able to seemingly break that law. But if you understand the purpose of the law, you won't see this as a breaking of it. And Jesus, in parallel accounts, points to other ways in which different people break the law, and I'm using air quotes if you listen to this recording later, since I already am sending you back to one recorded sermon. Need to clear that up. Well, David is seemingly breaking the law here, but God never condemns him for that action. Moses also seemingly breaks the law. John chapter 7, verses 19 through 24, Jesus says this to them, verse 19 of John chapter 7. Has Moses, has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? That's how the end, our passage ends, by the way, here. The crowd answered, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. And Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it that is from Moses, but from the fathers. In other words, circumcision preceded Moses. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. Listen, 
If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a whole man's body well? Do not, verse 24, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. The problem with the Pharisees is that their assumption that do not work applies to absolutely in every kind of activity is wrong. The Father works. The Father works right now, saving sinners. John chapter 5, verse 16 through 18, summarizes this conflict this way. It says that this is why the Jews persecuted Jesus or were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things, healings, on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now, and I am working. What the father was ceasing from at creation was his work of creation. He rested from one kind of work to focus on another. The priest in the temple, they work. They prepare the bread. They pull out the cold bread, get out the hot bread, they eat bread, they offer sacrifices, they conduct circumcisions. They're working. So by that definition, they are breaking the Sabbath. The problem is, though, is that they're ju judging this issue superficially. And in John chapter 5, Jesus says, or they say about Jesus, to continue this, this is verse 18 of chapter 5, this was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling himself, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. He does this when after clarifying, saying that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, he says in verse 28, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. His second appeal, his second really defense of himself and his disciples' actions is to say that, listen, I'm the Messiah. I have authority to dictate what is you're able to do on the Sabbath and what you're not able to do on the Sabbath. And notice it's not in any way, Jesus is not trying to say that he's in conflict with God's word, God's law. What he's setting himself up at odds with is with the law of the Pharisees. One that understood the fourth commandment to be teaching, do not work means do not do absolutely any activity. What made that action, though, in verse 26 the Pharisee, the, both the priest who gave David the bread and David eating the bread, what made that activity not unlawful is what he goes on to explain in chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 1, let's get this situation. What's going on here? He entered into a synagogue, and just by the way, Luke talks about that he was teaching that day. He held a worship service, and afterwards, a man there was there with a withered hand. And he, they watched him, verse 2, to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. 
so that they might accuse him. So they attended this worship service, and the Pharisees are sitting in the back, and they're just watching. They're just waiting for him to heal for the reason that they might accuse him of being a lawbreaker, a sinner. If before was a defense of his disciples' actions that they were guiltless, what we have here in these first six verses is a confrontation. Jesus calls the man up to the front of the synagogue. He calls him up to the front of church. This man with a defigured arm, and he brings him up and he says, he points to him, uses him as a teaching illustration to the guys sitting at the back. And he says, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do what is good or to do harm? To save life or to kill? Jesus is asking a rhetorical question. What's the answer? The Sabbath is made for good works. In other words, to quote verse 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. This is a common theme if you look at legalistic interpretations of the law of God. If you see, when you read the Old Testament, a bunch of list, a long list of do's and a long list of don'ts, you typically think of the law then as a burden, as arbitrary list of rules that we're to follow. We often act basically like our four-year-olds. We tell our four-year-olds, don't play in the road. You'll get hit by a car. And the four-year-old, well, they know what a car is, but they don't see the danger in that. They get in them all the time. And what they see is a great, smooth field for maybe throwing a football. And the four-year-old thinks that the parents' rules are arbitrary. They just don't want you to have fun. But what's the purpose of that law? It's for the child's good. And if you are anyone in this room, you can, you can tell that why maybe a four-year-old might not understand things. And well, that's because a four-year-old is just not as smart as an adult. We, I think we can all say that, right? That's why they don't understand that principle. And even if you're a teenager, you can probably think back to where you as a kid, you've gotten a lot smarter since you were four years old, or at least, you know, I hope so. How much more does that apply to God and his difference to us? Limited human beings who live, what, a hundred years in comparison to the infinite God of the universe? The fundamental principle in the law is that God commands that which is good, that which is for man. So if you are trying to seek to apply the, the fourth commandment in such a way where you're violating human needs or depriving people of what they need, food, or even good things like shelter, acts of mercy. This is why I'm really thankful for the larger catechism that summarizes it this way. This is larger catechism, question 117. When talking about the fourth commandment, it says that it's our duty to make it our delight to spend the whole time in the public and private exercises of God's worship. And there's a little clause there in between 
spend the whole time and in the public and private exercises. It says, except so much as it is to be taken up in the works of necessity and mercy. Isn't that what we see in both situations here? The day is still to be a day of worship. The day is still, and I'm talking about the Sabbath day, and for us, a Sunday, which I don't really have time to explain fully, but this day of rest that's very integral to our very being that we need as creatures to rest is we need as human beings to worship God. That's what we're created to do. But that need to worship does not mean that if someone was to have a heart attack in this room, me included, all of us would go and help that person. We would help them with their needs. And it doesn't mean that on the way home, if you're out of gas, that you shouldn't stop off to fill up your gas tank or you shouldn't cook to prepare food. It leads to absurdity. The view of the Pharisees leads to absolute absurdity. It misses the fundamental premise that we are not made to keep arbitrary rules, but that God's rules have a reason behind it, even if we might not be able to see all the nooks and crannies of that reason. God's law is for our good. There's this humanitarian principle that Jesus is applying to here, that he's appealing to here in his confrontation of the Pharisees' view. And think about what this has done to the Pharisees. You know, one goal in this is to try to get you guys and to do a teaching on what Jesus teaches on the fourth commandment. That's one goal. But there's another goal that's always apparent and always a part of any teaching in the Gospels, which is, who is this Jesus? What's his character? That's the reason why he's telling this story. He's doing it to, yes, clarify and put Jesus at odds from the teaching of the Pharisees, but he's also doing it in his person. Look at his emotion. Look at Jesus when he turns. When he brings that man up to the front and he heals them, he's shaming the Pharisees in that instance. He's brought this man up. He knows that they're watching him and that whether he's going to be active on the, on the Sabbath. Brings the man up to the front and he heals them. He, he heal, but before he heals them, he makes it a show. He says, is it not lawful to do what is good, to do harm, uh, to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to kill? And they were silent. They couldn't possibly answer Jesus's reasoning on this account. But that silence spoke volumes. Jesus is then filled with rage. It says here that he looked around at them, at who? At the Pharisees, with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched out and his hand was restored. The Pharisees, they could not possibly answer Jesus. And this actually happens throughout the Gospels. You see, time and time again, the Pharisees pose a question to him. Jesus then responds with a question of his own, and they, while Jesus was able to answer their question, they cannot answer his. 
The obvious thing is, is it lawful to do what is good? They cannot answer him. But you know what's really sad? Jesus asked a rhetorical question. The answer is absolutely obvious. Of course, it's okay to do good works seven days a week, not just six. But they actually answered Jesus's questions with their actions. Did you read verse six? The Pharisees went out immediately. They held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to destroy him. We see the, the Pharisees' hearts here. Jesus asked rhetorically, is it right? You know, are we supposed to harm people? Are we supposed to kill people on the Sabbath? That's obviously violating this humanitarian principle that's ingrained in the Sabbath day, that the Sabbath was made for man and for his good. But the Pharisees are not really all too concerned with keeping God's law. They answered Jesus' question, they rather not do good, but they choose to do what's explicitly wrong, to do harm. They choose not to do helpful things, not to do acts of mercy, but plan to kill. If we walk away from this sermon, now this is R.C. Sproul coming out. If we walk away from this sermon thinking, Oh, those wretched Pharisees. How could they be so hard-hearted, so calloused that they could not see what they're doing? They're condemning Jesus as a sinner. But in that very accusation, the only fingers that are pointing are pointing at them. In light of this challenge, they prove that Jesus is no sinner. Jesus keeps the law. He keeps the true intention clarified of the fourth commandment. The true lawbreakers are the Pharisees. And they do it because of their hardness of hearts. But if we walk away just thinking, man, I can't believe how wicked they are, we're missing the point. The Pharisees, it was said earlier in chapter 2, that they, did, they consider themselves righteous blameless in regards to keeping the law. And Jesus said, I've come as a doctor, not to heal the righteous, but to heal sinners. If your takeaway from this passage is that, hey, we're here on Sunday, we know the spirit of the law, we're not going to be really arbitrary in a list of do's and don'ts, but instead we are going to do what is good on the Sabbath, do what is uh, necessary, know that we can meet our needs, and then we've kept the law. You've just put yourself into the same category of the Pharisees, righteous. And what you can know for sure if you've done that is that means Jesus is not your Savior because he has come as a doctor to heal the sick. And even after becoming a Christian, it's, it's amazing how there's still a degree of callousness, is there not? There's a still a degree of stiffness in our necks that this word hardness is really referring to not so much their hearts, but it's referring to their minds. The same word that he uses here for the hardness of their hearts 
is the same word and descriptive phrase that he's going to use of the disciples time and time again throughout this gospel. They're dull. They hear what Jesus is doing. They see the obvious, yet it doesn't make it out into their practice. They don't actually submit to Jesus. You know, there's far more about the Bible and about Scripture that I do know God requires than there's far more that I have not kept than I actually have kept. Before God's eyes, we need to see that we're all sinners. That it should not surprise us that we haven't kept any of the Ten Commandments. And that includes the fourth. That we should not treat the fourth commandment, just get rid of it so that we can see, well, maybe Jesus, you know, he just lowered the, the bar for us to make it to where we can achieve it. You know, now we can do whatever we want. No, the principle still applies. This day is the Lord's day. And it's meant to be devoted to the delight in the worship of God from beginning to end, in public exercises and in private exercises. It's devoted to that. And when we do good works, we're not violating that principle, that delight, but rather we're doing the very intention of why the Sabbath was given. But we all, none of us, keep this law. We need to have our minds. We need to pray that the Holy Spirit would give us eyes to see. That our minds would not remain dull to his word, to his calls to, of repentance. We need to be careful about our hearts, too. How do things, I'm just looking at my hands, how do hands become calloused? By repetitive activity. They start off sensitive but then they grow hard. Don't let the preaching of God's word this morning or the reading of God's warning, if it's provoking you, sense, being sensitive to your sin, respond to it. Don't resist it. Don't grow hard. We have a loving Savior who is, yes, angry with our sin, but you know what? His anger does not prevent him from pursuing sinners. He came to die for sinners. His heart was grieved over their hardness of heart. Let's go to our Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word. Thank you that you have shown us what Jesus not only teaches about the Sabbath, but that our Lord is the Lord of the Sabbath. God created the heavens and the earth, and Jesus he is that God who created the heavens and the earth. He rested on that seventh day. He patterned our rest. He has the prerogative. He, has the, he deserves our worship one day in seven. We thank you that, Lord, you did not create an arbitrary law, but that you created a good law. Lord, we confess we often don't understand it, and we often break all of your commands because we lack understanding. But our lack of understanding is deeper than just a lack of knowledge. It's that often. But more often, our lack of understanding is not head knowledge, but heart knowledge. We do not practice the things we know. We do what ought not, we know ought not to be done, and we left undone the things we know we should be doing. But thanks be to God that we have a gracious Savior in Jesus Christ who died on the cross to save sinners. 
may we always see ourselves as sinners in need of a Savior. And we may, may we always trust in our risen Savior to provide for every need. And may our risen Savior conform us in our pattern of life, in our thoughts, words, and deeds, to be more and more like Christ. It's in Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. If you'll stand.